So we've reached uh, the end of Romans chapter 8 and we've been doing a systematic walk through the gospel, Paul's systematic presentation of God's plan of redemption. Um, And the climax of this mountain, as it were, on on the top of this mountain is a, a sign there and it says simply, God loves you. And uh, the headlights, the spotlights are on the sign to draw your attention to it. If we understand the gospel rightly, it's important we don't just understand it as a set of instructions about how to get saved, an instruction manual, but we understand it as a love letter um, that has got your name on it. And we really need to be established in that love that the gospel communicates, God's unconditional covenant love. To be encouraged by it, to be strengthened by it, to walk in it, to rest in it, to be motivated by it, to rejoice in it, and to live to make much of it. That's the bottom line. And that's why Paul uh, could say he regularly prays for believers in, in Ephesians, particularly for the saints in Ephesus, Ephesians 3.14, that they would be rooted and established in God's love and, and be given supernatural ability to be able to grasp the height and depth and extent of God's great love. The love of God, the covenant, the unconditional covenant love of God is the foundation of the gospel. It's the golden thread that runs throughout the gospel. It is the realization of the gospel's promises and hope. It's the one thing that you must understand as you understand the gospel. God loves you. That love originated in the past. It sustains you in the present. It culminates in the future. And it continues toward you forever. And so this morning in Romans chapter 8, we'll read again verses 31 to 38, five great realities, five great realities that flow from God's unconditional love toward us in Christ Jesus. God will always be for you. God will always supply for you. God will always forgive you. God will always accompany you. And God will always enable you. So let's read that together, Romans chapter 8, reading from verses 31. What then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can stand against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we've been killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
I'm sure. I'm absolutely convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a scripture to contemplate. God will always be for you in verse 31. He says, what shall we say to these things? What shall we say to all these things? And that must obviously refer to all the things that he's been unfolding in the first eight chapters and maybe more specifically in chapter 8. So as we, as we consider Paul's conclusion to all these things, let's just go back and recap, a brief recap of what all these things are so we can have them fresh in our minds as we consider his conclusion. How did Paul start this letter in Romans chapter 1, verse 1? Go back there. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. How could it be a privilege to be a slave? How could he start his letter with this great statement? Called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He could begin his letter because it's such a privilege in his mindset to serve the one who first served us. To serve the one who became a slave for us is such an honor and a privilege. And he's not just speaking about himself because he goes on to say in verse 5 of chapter 1, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, that is the language of covenant love. You call to belong to Him, to be His, to be in this covenant relationship with Him. And that's why He can say in verse 7, to all who are in Rome who are loved by God, His beloved, and called to be saints. Paul goes on to uh, present the, the depth and the extent of our sin and our depravity and then to present grace that is greater even than our sin. And in chapter 5, he, he draws out the implications as it were. If you go to chapter 5, reading from verse 6, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still ungodly and righteous and weak and unable to do anything to help ourselves, in fact, while we were still shaking our fist in rebellion Against God, Christ died for us. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But this was the demonstration of God's love for us. This is what helps us understand the nature and extent of God's love for us. This shows His love in verse 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us unconditional covenant love. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more will we be saved by him from the, the wrath of God. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies, God took the initiative to reconcile us by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, will we be saved by his life. This is how the gospel uh, began and how it continues and then Paul uh, goes on through the next 
three chapters to explain the implications of that and he comes really to the climax in Romans chapter 8 where he brings it all together. Consider Romans chapter 8, the summary of the hope and the confidence that we have because God made his enemies his sons. This is the hope that we have. Verse 1, follow along. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are forgiven. Verse 2, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We set free from sin and death. Verse 4, the righteous requirements of the law has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled in us who are being led by God's Spirit. Verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, and anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. God has given us the Spirit of adoption, the, the, the down payment and that signifies that we belong to Him, we are His, and He now indwells us permanently. We have God with us and in us, as our permanent privilege. Verse 11, the Spirit will certainly accomplish His renewing work in us. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. He will accomplish a full and comprehensive renewal of our spirit, soul, body, mind, every aspect of our being because he's that powerful as shown in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 15 You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you've received, you received the spirit of adoption as sons. We have become God's children by whom we cry Abba, Father and the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of of God. We have a new Father and a new access to God and a new boldness in being able to appeal to Him as our Father, knowing that He loves us. In verse 17, not only are we His children, but if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, given the greatest inheritance along with the greatest person in the universe, Jesus Christ. Verses 18 and 21. We have the hope, the certainty of future glory. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This comprehensive redemption of our bodies. Verse 26. Not only this, but the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself is continually interceding for us passionately and personally with groanings too deep for words so that we know that God's will for our life, His good and perfect will, will always be accomplished according to the Spirit's intercession. Verses 28. We know that for those who love God, all things are working together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. God is providentially working together in all our circumstances, in every detail of every day, for your good, personally and specifically. And that good is embodied in this great chain that Paul 
lays out here for those who are called according to his purpose those whom he foreknew those he set his love upon in eternity past he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that in eternity future we might be with Christ and Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he then called effectually, personally convincingly, effectively and those whom he called he also justified completely, forgiven, made righteous given a perfect standing before him legally and officially and those whom he justified he glorified and gave us all of his glory what shall we say to these things you get the flow it's overwhelming it's overwhelming when he says what shall we say to these things obviously then God is for us God is for us this plan of redemption is not just a sweeping plan it's personal and it's specific and it's directed towards you notice all the pronouns in this text what shall we say God is for us who shall be against us he who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all will he not graciously give us all things who will bring any charge against God's elect do you see all the pronouns? This whole text is about the us. The us who believe in Jesus Christ. The us who are the objects of his love. The us who have been the object of all this working. It's personal and specific. It comes down to you who believe in Jesus Christ. God's elect. God is for us. God is on our side. God is working on our behalf. God always has our back. God's love is being worked out in our life invincibly so. And everything that we've been seeing is the evidence of that. And it confirms that. We undermine the force of this passage when we, we equate this kind of love, this unconditional covenant love, with the general kind of love that God has for all of creation and for all people. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the specific covenant love that God has for his elect. Those whom he foreknew before the foundation of the world and worked out all of these things towards. The us is here is always specific and personal. It's a package deal. All of these things are true of those who are the objects of God's love. He set his love upon us in eternity past and we will be glorified with him in eternity future. And he called and he justified and he reconciled and he accomplished all of this. When we make this a general kind of love, we nullify the force of this because you see there are some people who are going to spend eternity in hell separated from God. And it's not because his love towards them failed. It's not because he set his love upon them, but through some circumstances beyond God's control, or some sin, or some rebellion, or some scheme of Satan, or some hardness of heart, they managed to thwart God's love. And so they don't experience it. 
That's the implications if we equate this to a general kind of love. No, this is a specific kind of love. It's an unconquerable love. It's a love which is directed to you specifically and personally who have faith in Jesus Christ. And it always accomplishes its loving purpose. They are in hell because of their sin and rebellion against God. And we would be there too if God had not set His love upon us unconditionally while we were still weak and worked out this loving plan and purpose toward us. And so too we undermine the nature of this love when we make it conditioned on some response that we've made. God loves those who love Him. God loves people with this kind of love who first loved Him or first believed in Him or first responded to the Gospel. No. That's not at all what we've been seeing throughout Romans 8. God's love can't be thwarted. We love God because He first loved us. If we could thwart God's love or we could resist God's love, we could undermine God's love, then how do we know that we're secure in it? How do we know that sometime in the future we won't fall out of love with God? But Romans 8, 28-30 says there's an unbrokable chain of God's love that began in eternity past and will be realized in eternity future and no link in that chain is contingent and can be broken. Romans 9 10 and 11 is going gonna, is gonna to slam dunk that issue if it's unclear in your mind. But what you must understand this morning is that for us is very personal to God and it should be personal for you. And it says if God is for us who could stand against us? Here's implication number one. That those whom God is for will face opposition. Right? We will be opposed. That's been another key throughout this text. In verse 18 he says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed. He talks about all creation groaning. So there will be ways that we are opposed where we face difficulty, we will be persecuted. I hope you've been following the events in Afghanistan where we have brothers and sisters that are being hunted down and killed, some of them, simply because they believe in Jesus Christ. That has been taking place throughout the ages. We will face sickness and physical weakness and pain because all creation is groaning. We will face financial hardship and lose our jobs. We will lose that contract or that sale because we, we, are, we don't belong to the world and refuse to enter into their bribery and corruption and play the games that they play. We will face rejection because those who hate God will hate us simply because we associated with them. We will face loss of every kind. We will have our possessions taken from us and we will have people mistreat us. We will have our pride broken and we will feel overwhelmed. Do you believe it? 
but none of this will ultimately prevail over us. That's what the text is saying. People will stand against. Circumstances will stand against. There will be things that come in opposition to us, but they will not overcome us. Why? Because God is 100% for us all the way. We have standing behind us the greatest being in the universe, the one who sets the stars in place and holds them in place and causes them to travel along their path by the mere word of his mouth. And he is 100% for us. And he's working out his loving purposes for us. Secondly, God will always supply for you. Verse 32, God will, is always for you. God will always supply for you. It says there, He who didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God will graciously give us all things. He will, in keeping with his grace, his unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor, give us all things. And he's kind of drawing a contrast here. If God has given us Christ to demonstrate his love for us, to fulfill his loving purposes for us, to address our greatest need, if God has been willing to give that great gift, then surely along with him, notice how it also says, he will surely also with him, you see there verse 32, with Christ give us all things. In other words, all things necessary to accomplish his loving purposes, all things for our spiritual good. The, 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 the emphasis is clearly on the spiritual, right, as our ultimate good. God gave us Christ, and along with Christ, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, as Ephesians 1 puts it. Right? Along with Christ, it's this package deal which just gives us absolutely everything. But although the emphasis is clearly on the spiritual need that we have, our need to be reconciled with God and all the things He gives us in Christ, I don't think there's any reason to limit it to that. It says, all things. Right? So I think the emphasis is on the spiritual, but the implication is, anything that we need, anything that is for our good, God will give us. Because, and how do we know that? Because he's given us the greater. He will surely give us the lesser. So if I could put it this way, if uh, you have injured your leg and I say to you, you need this special operation in the United States in order to fix this. And so I say, I, I, you know, I say listen, I'm going to hire a full-time nurse for you to dress your wounds, uh, to administer the medication, I've organized my private jet. I don't have one, but this is, this is the theoretical story. I've organized my private jet to fly you over immediately to America. I myself will accompany you on the journey there. We'll take care of everything. I have some contacts in America. I've arranged the best surgeon at the highest price and accompanying you know, nurses and so on to take care of you there. Then what, what can you conclude from that? I intend to do you good. I'll stop at nothing to make sure that this leg is sorted out, right? It would be ridiculous if we arrived at the hospital 
And as you're sort of getting out the car, you say, could you just help me up these stairs? And I say to you, what do you think this is? Help you up the stairs. Forget it, I'm going for coffee. Can you sense that? That's Paul's point. Listen, God overcome the great, overcame the greatest obstacle to his love in giving his son, his beloved son. If he was willing to give that, then anything else you might ask of God or, or he might give is nothing by comparison. It would be easy, provided it's for your good. Implication number two then. It says here, He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Notice the question marks in throughout this section. And the question marks are meant to just make us stop for a moment, pause and contemplate the implications. Just to, to think about what this actually means in your life practically and personally. The basis of contentment is understanding that we are unconditionally and covenantally loved. If we understand the depth and the extent of God's love for us, then there is never a reason to be discontent. Because God will always give us everything that we need. He's determined to do us good. If it's for our good, we'll have it. So we can come and we can ask God with great confidence, Father, I need this. I need this to serve you. I need this to do the ministry you've called me to do. I need this to survive. I need this for this or this or this or this. And we can come to God and, and we can know that every need that we have, if, if it's a legitimate need, if it's good for us, God will give it to us freely because He's already given us His Son. And if He doesn't, or He hasn't yet, it's obviously because it's not for our good. It's obviously not good for us right now. There's something better that God has for us, which can only be accomplished by withholding this. When we are discontent, we are calling into question God's love for us. We in effect are saying, God has given me Jesus Christ, but if He really loved me, He would give me that promotion. He would give me that healing. He would give me that house, car, whatever you want to put there. You see how ridiculous it is? We're really saying God doesn't love us or, or otherwise He's not actually in control of, of everything. But once we understand that He knows everything and He loves us so comprehensively, we can live with contentment in the present even though we might lack by our understanding. Thirdly, God will always forgive you. So God will always, is always for you. God will always supply for you. God will always forgive you in verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
those whom God has chosen, selected. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who will bring any charge? It's a legal term, any accusation, any case. God is the one who justifies. God has declared us not guilty. No case can be made against us when the greatest judge of the universe has already rendered his verdict. That's the point. If God has chosen to apply the merits of Christ to our account, there is no greater merit that can be applied to our benefit. <clears throat> Not only <clears throat> is God the Father justifying us, but it's on the basis of Christ. He says that Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who's raised, is at the right hand of God who is interceding for us. And it goes through the work of Christ. Christ Jesus died. Christ Jesus raised. Christ Jesus ascended to the highest place of authority. And there he exists and lives with one purpose in mind. He belongs to me. My blood has covered his sin. He's justified. I died for her. She's the object of your love. Same word used of the Spirit. Early on in chapter 8 and verse 26, He's interceding for us. We've got the Trinity here who all agree that you're fully forgiven and that you have a right standing with God. Obviously, there's an implication here that there will come accusations against us. Verse 34 says, Who will condemn? Who's going to bring these accusations? Well, Revelation 12.10 gives us some insight. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. It says, Day and night he accuses us before the throne of God. And it goes on to say that we conquer him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony by holding on to the gospel of God's grace. And Satan will use many different agents. He'll use people, he'll use family, he'll use work colleagues, bosses, friends. He will even use you against yourself. The accuser of the brethren. The one who will come to you and say, you're not a Christian. How can you be a Christian? Look at what you've done again. How could you have said that? How could you have done that? God's not going to understand this. This is going too far. This is one time too many. How can you be blowing it all the time? You're not good enough to be a Christian. You're not holy enough to be a Christian. You don't really believe this, do you? from the world and from the flesh and from the devil. And when they come and assail us, it is to these great gospel truths that we must return. These things. Our God is for us. Our Christ died for us. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound 
that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. Nothing and no one can prevail against gospel grace. Jesus is always pleading our innocence. That's how the text ends. He is always living to plead our innocence before the Father. No accusation will stand. So we can't make up for our sin. We can't justify our sin. We can't do penance for our sin. All we can do is come back to the gospel and confess our sin. Come back to God and call sin what it is. Call it sin. Agree with God that this is sin. Call it sin. Call it forgiven. Agree with God that in Jesus Christ every sin is paid for. Call on God to change you. Agree with God that in the gospel He's provided not only for your forgiveness but for your victory. Your comprehensive victory over sin. Call on God to change you. He's promised. That's what 6, 7 and 8 is about. God's grace is also for the present and He will lead you in victory. That's what Christians do with our sin. That's the only thing we do with our sin. God is always for you. God will always forgive you. Fourthly, God will always accompany you. God will always accompany you. Verse 35, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we have been killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. God will always accompany you. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And verse 39 concludes, Nothing in all creation, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God is not an abstract reality. It's God with us acting in love. That's what it is. It's God ever-present and ever-active in accomplishing His loving purposes toward us. And when God wants to give His people comfort and assurance, He just says, I'm with you. That's the greatest way that God can think of to comfort anyone and to assure them and to help them. That's God's answer to every need. He uses these simple words to encourage Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and Jeremiah and Zerubbabel and Paul when they were persecuted. It's his comfort to the people of Israel in the Old Testament and it's his comfort to you. Isaiah 41, verses 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. Do you get the idea here? You, specifically, personally, whom I have handpicked and selected out the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the farthest corners, saying, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not. Fear not. Why? Because I am with you. 
Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you will be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. Again, what do we see? The same idea, I am with you. And therefore you will prevail. Isaiah 43 verse 5, Fear not. Why not? For I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, from the west. I'll gather you. I'll say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory and I formed and made. And then to Jeremiah in chapter 15 verse 20. I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they will not prevail over you. Why? For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. Do you understand that significance, that God is for us and nothing can separate us from His active love, His personal love, His personal loving presence in us and with us in all things. It means nothing and no one can touch you. Nothing comes into your life unless it's passed through the filter of God's loving providence and meets His stamp of approval. When we, a child is lost or fearful, what do they do? They just make a beeline for mom and dad. And when they're taken up in mom and dad's arms, all is well. And this text says God never leaves us. We never need to run to him because we never leave his arms. The fourth implication then is that we will feel abandoned. That's what flows out of this text. We will feel abandoned. Verse 35 provides a long list of things that might make us feel abandoned. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, poverty, hunger, violence, crime, ill health, circumstances that are going against you, people that are slandering and accusing you and opposing you, finances that are failing, plans that are going nowhere. These things make us feel that we've been abandoned. They make us feel that God is not with us. He quotes there in verse 36, Psalm 44. We feel like, you know, all day, for your sake we've been killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We, we regard it as helpless, weak, nothing, no one, just waiting to be slaughtered. We feel vulnerable, we feel abandoned. We feel like sheep going to the slaughter. We often feel weak and overwhelmed in this world. We'll often feel like the world is winning and God is absent. But our feelings are not the measure of truth. The gospel is. And God's unconditional love is. Despite how we might feel, despite what these realities tell us, 
God's love toward us has not and will not and cannot change. And He is with us. Suffering doesn't mean God is not near or God doesn't love me as we so often assume. You see, the starting point as we face these things must be the love of God. That's the first assumption that we must always make in every circumstance. God loves me. This much I know. Which brings me to the final point. God will always enable you. In verse 37 and 39, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things, in trouble and distress and hardship and danger and nakedness and sword, we are hyper-nikau, hyper-conquerors. We overwhelmingly conquer. Do you get that? It's not that we just survive. It's not that we just crawl our way through. It's not that we just manage to get through and finally cross the finish line. That's not the word he uses. It's hyper-conquer. We blaze a trail of victory all the way to glory. That's what he's saying. Not because of our strength, not because of our cleverness, not because of our endurance or our resolve, but why? Because of him who loved us. Because of what God is doing, right? That's what this whole chapter has been about, right? This whole chapter has been about all that God has done and is doing and will do for us. It's a chapter full of God showing love practically and personally for us through Him who loves us. God will cause us to conquer. And the implication here is that we'll face these things, death, demons, powers, height, depth, many things that we find totally overwhelming. Many things that are beyond our strength and ability. And somehow, impossibly so, supernaturally so, we will prevail. Because God's name and God's reputation depends on it. This is what God has promised and what He's committed to. Nothing in physical existence Nothing in spiritual existence, nothing in temporal existence, nothing in spatial existence. That's verse 38. Nothing in existence. Nothing in existence can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 8, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We are weak, but God's strength is sufficient. So I would summarize these points this way. Because God is determined to love us, He will always provide for our every need, forgive our every sin, be with us in every circumstance, and strengthen us through every trial until every loving purpose of His is fully fulfilled in our union with Jesus Christ. Because God is determined to love us, 
He will always provide for our every need, forgive our every sin, be with us in every circumstance, strengthen us through every trial until every loving purpose of his is fully fulfilled in our union with Jesus Christ. This text should just make every problem, every person, every fear pale into insignificance and help you have the confidence, the surety that whatever lies between today and eternity, you will be standing there on that day amongst the great cloud of witnesses saying He is worthy. Let's pray.